This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the Business Radio studio in New York City, this is Purpose Built. Purpose Built. Here's your host, Joey Swillinger. Hi, this is Joey Swillinger, and you're listening to Purpose Built. This is a show hosted by Sirius about businesses and entrepreneurs who have started incredibly successful businesses but have not sacrificed anything in their in their moral compass or what they believe in. And, and these are really businesses that are built for a higher purpose beyond just making money. We wanted to use this show to create inspiration for other people who might want to be interested in starting a business or doing something in their life that, that uh, feels like there might be tension, like there often, often is ascribed in business around making money and doing good. Uh, but we're here to show you a few examples where that's really not the case. Uh, I started a company called Allbirds, uh, which is built around uh, uh, selling sustainable products, both footwear and in the future, many others with my co-founder, Tim Brown. Uh, but we're not here to talk about Allbirds today. We're actually uh, very fortunate to be uh, graced by Greg Renfrew, who started a company called Beauty Counter. And and if there's an example of a company that has no compromise between fantastic products and not leaving a scar on the planet or on the people who use those products, this is a phenomenal example. Uh, I woke up this morning pretty early to come down to the studio in L.A., and I threw on Counterman beard oil. But before that, I, I trimmed up a little bit, and I used Counterman shaving cream. It was incredible. That's why you look so good. Thank you. <laughs> I wish everyone here could see. Um, so, Greg, thank you for joining us. Thanks pleasure for having to, me. Pleasure to hang with you. Thank you. Um, so, I, I would just like to, uh, before we even dig into Beauty Counter, which which you started back in 2011, I want to first dive into uh, why you even became an entrepreneur. And and um and, and maybe maybe why don't we start? Just give us a quick overview of what Beauty Counter is. We'll we'll get back to it, but but then I have a couple questions, and I'd love to hear actually about why you started as an entrepreneur and where that mentality came from, and where that where that where that was unearthed in your childhood or wherever it started. That's a good question as to where it started. I, I think in terms of Beauty Counter, we are both a beauty brand and a movement. I started Beauty Counter because I thought there was an opportunity to bring products into the market that were both high-performing and significantly safer for health. And we can talk a little bit more about what that means. But I th- saw a real void in the beauty marketplace. There were all these brands, the traditional brands that were filled with toxic chemicals and performed well but weren't safe for health and then there were all these brands that were arguably safer for the environment and for human health but they weren't they weren't really a commercially viable high performing product and that was the opportunity I saw to really change the entire industry in terms of being an entrepreneur I mean I, I you know I, I don't know how or why I became you know where it all began but I think that you know from the earliest days my my father was entrepreneurial uh, somewhat unsuccessfully but he actually was always well ahead of the curve and so you know I remember when I was about 11 years old my dad had a videotape company that he would actually videotape real estate because he thought why would anyone want to drive around the countryside looking at homes that they would never want to buy and you know fast forward I don't know how many years you know you see things like realtor.com and Zillow and of course he was he was ahead of his time I also think that you know, my my family felt on difficult times financially, and I was always forced, you know, from I'd say about the age of 13 on to have a side hustle to, you know, have my pocket money or to pay for things that I wanted to do. And I think that, you know, I think it was a combination of seeing things that hadn't yet you know, become sort of fully realized in the commercial marketplace and a need to make money that probably drove me to becoming an entrepreneur. So I've, I've heard you talk about uh, your upbringing a bit before, and, you know, sometimes it's by sheer willpower that you want to be an entrepreneur and sometimes it's thrust upon you. So can you talk a little bit about kind of your upbringing and how your family affected your desire to be in business and, and you are a very scrappy business leader, which I've always admired. So where did it come from? You know, I think that I came from, by most standards, a, a relatively well-positioned family, but my, my dad uh, lost his job when I was, my parents got divorced and then my dad lost his job and kept losing his job as technology took over the business that he was in 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 the financial world. And then he was diagnosed with cancer. And all those things together 
put us in a sort of difficult financial situation. And I watched my mother, who had gone to college but not um, had only had a two-year degree and hadn't been working, struggle to make ends meet. She wanted to afford my brother and me a lifestyle that she had that she'd had as a child. And so we used to, she used to buy homes and then we would move to them and she'd fix them up on sort of the fringe of town. And then she'd sell those houses and use that money to pay for our school or whatever. And I think, I think I just watched that struggle and probably had a, became a little bit, uh, focused on money, just not necessarily wanting money to build power to be enormously wealthy. I just didn't want to worry about it. And so I think it's something that's always been on my mind because it was sort of front and center in my childhood. But I also watched my mother and my dad do things sort of on the fringe or do entrepreneurial types of endeavors to make ends meet because they didn't have that steady corporate job all along. So I I watched my mother be successful, you know, looking at where a market was going for her. It was in real estate and figuring out, oh, that area of town is going to be, you know, gentrified or whatever. And she, she kept building on that. And so it was a great, it was a great thing to watch and certainly she was a great role model for me cool that's great and, and, and i know you went to uh, university of vermont and you're you know diving into ben and jerry's ice cream <laughs> exactly i mean they weather, were like the first the b corporation yeah I mean, you know ben and jerry's i mean was was founded in burlington and i remember it was still a small company when i was in college and you know honestly i went to college and i was i was lucky to be afforded you know debt free education but i was never a great student i always say like i should have gone to one of those other schools that my friends went to but i loved uvm but i think i focused more on the social side of college probably than my <laughs> academics but i did you know i was really curious and tried to learn as much. It just maybe wasn't so great on the homework side of things. Well, it turned out it didn't worked out just okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, so, what was the first entrepreneurial thing you did in college or after? Well, the very first entrepreneurial thing I did was I. I learned about this program called Semester at Sea when I was a sophomore in college or a freshman in college. It was a program where people went on a boat and they went around the world. I've heard and that's I, a really hard work. Yeah, it was really, people, yeah. it was tough. And so I went to my mother. You know, a lot of my friends were trying to go abroad or do internships or things like that, but I was obsessed with seeing the world. I've always been obsessed with seeing the world. And I wanted to go, and my mother said, Well, I can't afford to pay that you know, additional costs. So if you can figure out how to get yourself a ticket on that boat, go for it. And so that summer I went um, and spent the summer on an island in Nantucket off the coast of Boston. And I cold called all of these uh, real estate firms to say, I know you have rentals. Can I, can I clean homes? And they kept hanging up on me, but finally one woman said, sure, I'll give you a chance. And so I started a cleaning company with two of my best friends, they they did a lot of the cleaning with me. They did not do any of the cold calling with me. But we started and we left the island, I mean, with thousands of dollars. We would employ people who were even younger than we were. We would charge the people $20 an hour and we would pay them 10 And we built a very successful business. And we did that for a couple of summers. I think sometimes I had more money then than I have now. <laughs> it was a good gig. Love it. Love it. Uh, started cleaning toilets, moved yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, you I know, love it. yeah, it was, you know, it's humbling, but you know what? It's it's good. Totally it keeps you grounded. And, and and then you you also started a business called Wedding List. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'd love to hear about the conclusion of that, and we'll dive into what you learned too. Yeah. So as I as I said earlier, I've I've always been obsessed with seeing the world, and I wanted to go. I wanted to live abroad, so I. With my day job, moved to London in my early 20s, was working in finance, which was really not that appealing to me, but it was a ticket to get to, you know, to to England. And on the side, in the meantime, before I moved to London, I had started a bridesmaid's dress company because I hated the dresses that I was being asked to wear. And I saw another business opportunity. I thought, well, why can't we create better looking dresses for girls who are going through that whole, you know, sort of wedding phase of their lives. And so my friend and I started a company called Elizabeth Gregg, our two middle names, and we did about 40 weddings. And at that point, I think we realized like this is just not a good business because the bride wants a really expensive dress. The bridesmaids have no money. Everyone says they're, you know, size zero and they're not. They're size eight, which is fine. It doesn't matter what size you are, but there was no, there was, and then they would be upset that things didn't fit very well. So I got out of that business. But during that period of time, I was, was transferred to London with my job and I was introduced to a woman named Nicole Heinmarch who had started a wedding registry service called The Wedding List and at the time it was she had a store in uh, in Kensington in London and she would go from store to store and let people pick different presents for their list and I thought well that's an interesting concept but 
even more interesting if you incorporate the internet. And these are the early days, you know, this is late 90s. And so I brought that concept back to the States and we launched the wedding list as the first, one of the very first true multi-channel retail businesses in the United States. Mm. So you could actually transact Online. for products on the website we could. as well as like put your list together and, and whatnot. Correct. It was actually an incredible business model, honestly, a little bit too far ahead of its time. We, I, you know, I was in my mid twenties trying to convince all of these guys and, and I mean guys, cause there were no women in venture capital in those days, um, trying to convince people that you could one buy wedding gifts online and, and also just buy wedding gifts. I mean, their eyes would glaze over immediately, even though it was like a $40 billion industry, but the, you know, today it seems ridiculous. Well, Amazon was like selling books yeah, at that I time mean, on the yeah, internet. I mean, they so were just, they were just launching. Um, but it's funny because I remember people saying to me, well, no one's going to buy a wedding gift online. And now no one would ever want to go to a store when you, you know, you know what you're comfortable spending. It's like, okay, I want to spend $50 or $75. What's in my price point? It's on someone's list. Click, you're done. So it was, it was a great business model, but it was, it was a little bit challenging because it was a little, it was a little bit ahead of its time. So, um, so how, where'd you build it to? How many, how many employees? Give us a little context on what happened with it. So it was a relatively small company still when we um, we built it to, I think we had about 100 employees. We had three stores, one in New York, one in Boston, one in London. We had a partnership with Nordstrom who had made an investment in the company and we were in the process of building out shop and shops across their entire list of sort of A-list, you know, portfolio uh, locations. And it was going really, really well. And then the dot-com market blew up and our investors absolutely freaked. And it was too bad because we had exceeded all of the revenue expectations. When we were on fire as a company, I I think the sales were still small. I mean, I think they were less than 10 million, but we were gaining traction very, very quickly. We had only been in the market for less than two years. But um, but we created this movement. People loved it. Bride and groom loved it because they got to choose what they wanted, and guests loved it because they could purchase online. It was working, but then our investors got spooked, even hmm. though not not because of us. So what'd you do? So we ended up um, sort of pre- somewhat prematurely selling the company, and we'd been talking to we were in conversations with Ralph Lauren for a long time and Martha Stewart, and we ultimately sold to Martha Stewart in in two thousand one and. I then went on to run that business underneath her umbrella, which was which was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it is. Um, and how long did you do that for? Not very long. I stayed for a year. You know. <laughs> so when you say interesting. You yeah, mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, Martha's a strong, very powerful woman, and I am a strong woman too, and I probably was stronger than she needed me to be. Uh, I had, you know, I think it was the first acquisition that Martha Stewart Living Omni Media had ever done, and that wow. entire brand had been built around her. You know, it was interesting. We had this kind of quote-unquote monetization platform. We could make a lot of money off of the bride and groom. She had this incredible content engine in their weddings magazine, and we thought it was a perfect marriage, but it just it didn't it didn't work for me individually as well as it worked for others. So I left after after a year. I'd I'd, I'd had enough and let some of my teammates stay on to try to build the business within her organization. Is it, does it still exist? It does not. You know, she and that company fell on very difficult times yeah. right during that time frame, and they really are incredible at creating content. They're not an operating business and we yeah. had stores and we had product. So she ended up selling it off and, you know, unfortunately it's not a household name today, but it, it should be. Yeah. That's, that's a, it's a great story. And then, uh, I, I want to kind of skip ahead a little bit cause I know, uh, just from, just from doing my own homework, it, it sounds like the idea for beauty counter, at least the very early start of it, Kind of happened in 2006 ish time frame. Um, so, so just being along, talk, talk about what was the real catalyst for the idea, or at least the spark of, hey, there's a problem. In 2006, I mean, at the urging of one of my best friends, I watched An Inconvenient Truth, which was a documentary film that many people have watched about the environment. And I immediately became impassioned with the environmental health movement and really started to, you know, make sweeping changes in my life and started to become much more conscious of what I was doing and how my lifestyle might be detrimental to the earth. During that period of time, I also had a caregiver who was taking care of my then less than one-year-old daughter who was diagnosed with a non-HPV-related cervical cancer, and she died within 11 months. And, mm. you know, that that sort of – there was about a two-year period where I was focused on the environment. I was watching Cindy 
wither away in front of me, which broke my heart. I was watching so many of my friends uh, struggle with fertility, give birth to children with severe asthma or allergies or be diagnosed with, you know, cancer, different types of cancer themselves. And I started to wonder, okay, what's going on wrong? What's, what's going wrong right now? What's, what's up? What's up with the earth and what's up with human health? And the thing that I started to realize is that we were being exposed to toxic chemicals, both on, you know, in, on the, the earth is every single day, but so are we as human beings. And, when I realized that, I started doing a ton of research, started switching all of my products. I could get rid of my nonstick pans. I got rid of my plastic, all those things. But when it came to skincare, cosmetics, sunscreen, personal care products, there just weren't any products that met my needs. And I saw a real business opportunity to, you know, there was white space around there to really create a new business that was focused on high-performing products that were safer for health. And but also, you know, for me from day one, it was how do we create a movement because this needs to change for everyone. Not just it's not just about beauty counter. This needs to be this entire industry needs to shift. Yeah, and, and were you the only one thinking that at the time? Were you ahead of the curve again, or is this something that was started to to be recognized as an issue for personal care specifically, maybe? You know, I think if you were to talk to my friends, I was definitely the only one talking about it. I mean, I was obsessed. I mean, I still am obsessed. I literally was sitting in my son's flag football game on Saturday, and this friend of mine started spraying this, I won't even say the brand, you know, sunscreen all over the kids. And I literally was like, guys, you know, you're killing the coral reefs. You know, we have this butterfly migration happening in Los Angeles right now. I'm like, these butterflies are going to breathe. Everyone's going to breathe this in. And this is so harmful to your child's health. Like, I know you don't want to get a sunburn, but there are better choices out there. I was always that person. The minute I learned about our exposure to toxic chemicals and the chemicals that were being used in commerce, I became obsessed with it. And so I think I was very far ahead of the curve. Uh, no one was talking about clean beauty. It was still being marketed as eco. No one even, the, right. the word clean didn't exist. And the brands that existed were small. They were very niche and no one even knew that they, I mean, there were a few brands that people had heard of, but, but largely none. And where, where do you think we are today? Have people evolved? I think that the beauty industry has woken up to the fact that clean beauty is not only the future, it's here and it's now and it's not a fad. I think consumers still in general lack awareness of this issue because none of the large companies are bringing it to the forefront of their minds. I mean, when I started Beauty Counter, we had, I think it was something like less than 20% of Americans had any idea that there might be chemicals of concern in the products that they used. And it's because they believe that the FDA has the ability to recall products and to that they're screening these these ingredients for safety before products hit the shelves most people just have no idea they trust that the government's actually taking care of them because it does you know and, the, and i think the government to some extent does in the food industry yeah. but in the beauty industry we have laws that date back to 1938 so it's been 80 years since we've passed a major federal law regulating our industry hmm. which is about a 64 billion dollar industry and so yes people you know you'll hear about a recall if there's a salmonella outbreak or whatever it is in food but with beauty if there's a product that needs to be recalled they can't do anything about it hmm. and what are some of the the health issues that you identified that you've now and since starting the company have have been on a fight to solve from the from the personal care industry the things that we focused at, at beauty counter are the, the chemicals that lead to cancer all different types of cancer endocrine disruption, neurotoxicity, and reproductive toxicity. Okay. I mean, the, one of the things that I think people don't realize is how much these products impact your ability to reproduce. And it's not just in women. I, you know, I often, when people hear about Beauty Counter, and you know, sometimes I think if I hadn't used the word beauty, people would think about it differently, but they immediately think of women's li lipstick or something. But this isn't a women's makeup issue. This is a, an, an American health issue that, that every single one of us, women and men, you know, young, old children or babies, they're all being impacted by the products that we're putting on our body. Yeah. Our bodies. And okay. So problem identified. Uh, now it's, you got to, you got to make some products, figure out what you want to make. Cause there's tons of different ones you could have started with. Uh, you got to Maybe raise some money, maybe not. Talk to us about like making that leap from where you were at to, and and seeing a problem to starting a business. When I decided to start Beauty Counter, first of all, <laughs> there are a bunch of things that were going against me. No one 
was talking about clean beauty and certainly no one wanted to no one wanted to make clean beauty products. Number two, I did not come from the beauty industry and I was a woman that hardly had ever even worn makeup, so that was new for me. And I'm not a chemist and I went to the University of Vermont, so I didn't I didn't get my, you know, my PhD from Harvard. So I had a lot of things going against me, but I certainly believed in what we were doing. And I, I you know, I said from day one when I went to raise capital, which I did because we my husband and I did not have enough money to fund the business. So how much you raise? We raised right out of the gate. I mean, I raised a couple hundred thousand in the beginning, but really immediately raised a couple million because to create products, we had to start from scratch. You know, I, I naively thought, oh, well, I can take some base formulas that other brands use and then just tweak them a little bit. But that's not how it works in the beauty industry. So everything that we created, we created from scratch with manufacturers who had never used uh, the ingredients that we asked them to use. So just to give you a little bit of context, the EU, uh, well over a decade ago, banned or restricted 1,400 ingredients from personal care products. The United States, when I started, had banned 11. We're now up to a whopping 30. We at Beauty Counter have restricted more than 1,600 ingredients. So, you know, as one of my partners, Michael McGeever, always says, he's like, Greg, you know, you always say, oh, I went to this amazing restaurant last night and had this awesome chocolate cake. And Michael, I need you to make that exact chocolate cake, but you can't use chocolate flour, sugar, or eggs. But <laughs> it needs to be done. It needs to be done tomorrow, and it has to be just as good. That's kind of what we were up against. And so it took us a couple of years and a couple of million dollars just to even begin to create the products. Huh, wow. Um, so, so it took two, two years from when you started it and you you had this original idea in 2006. You started the company now in 2011. So my no, I I watched an inconvenient truth in 2006. I think over a period of a couple of years, sort of 2006 to 2008 nine, I was learning about what was sure. going on out there and watching people get sick and learning about toxic chemicals. When I moved to Los Angeles in late 2008 and early 2009, I started looking at this industry and I concepted it really in 2010 and started working on it full time in 2011. Okay, cool. And and what did you what were the first products? How many the first were there? Products, what, what were yeah. they? What class? So there were the first products. I think we launched with 11 products and we it, it's funny. We originally I originally partnered with a makeup artist named Christy Coleman, who was really the first leading makeup artist to switch her kit to clean green products. And we were going to start with makeup. We got all the way down the road and we thought, well, wait, this is ridiculous. If we're putting clean makeup on top of toxic skincare, that defeats the purpose. So we started over again. So we launched with what we called our essential line, which was a product, I think it was five skincare products, like a basic moisturizer, cleanser, et cetera. And then a couple of body products, a body lotion, shampoo, body wash. We wanted you to get through your day with those essential items you needed just to get out of the house and go to work. We started with that and we now, I don't know, have about 150 products, but it was skincare and body care products. And then about a year and a half later, later we layered on the cosmetics. Okay, cool. So, so about Seven eight years later, you now have 150 products up from your first so 10x in the in the product count. I like how you said uh, the the challenge of making these products from scratch and having to reformulate everything comes in the supply chain. I think that's totally under underestimated by most people. We have the exact same issues at Allbirds when we make shoes out of renewable materials that have never been touched in the industry. We struggle for long periods of time to get our our manufacturing partners to do it. So it makes makes a ton of sense for me. Is there a product that you have not cracked that with that you'd love to crack it with? Yes, we have not yet launched deodorant, and it's actually been literally been the number one request from all of our clients from day one mm. is I want a healthy deodorant that works, and we just haven't figured it out yet, and we've been working on it for years. And does that mean like no <clears throat> aluminum, or does it mean a lot of things? Well, it's mostly it's mostly focused on aluminum, but there for us we go beyond that. And don't ask me exactly what ingredients the product development team is trying to remove exactly, other than aluminum. But it's we can get products. We you know what people will say is that the the safer brands often don't don't work, and so you know to create something that's both an antiperspirant and a deodorant that is void of harmful chemicals is not that easy. We just haven't figured yeah. it out, and um, we had we came really close a couple of years ago and then about 20% of the people were having sort of adverse sort of they were getting like rashes and I thought well it works for fine for me but I can't launch a product that 20% of yeah. the people trying it, it it's not working for them so that's been hard and in mascara we have a good mascara but I wouldn't say it's amazing yet. Uh, you know, I think people who are committed to a cleaner uh, approach to product would say that I think we've got one of the best in the market, but it's still really difficult. Mascara is used, I mean, everything in mascara in, in a commercial brand that you know of, you know, all the traditional brands is pretty harmful to health in our opinion. And so it's just been really hard to make it. 
And you, I mean, you said you were not a technical. I mean, you studied English in Vermont. Is that right? I did. Yeah. So, and this is, I mean, if you read the back of anything in in personal care other than just a straight up oil, I think the majority of people couldn't even pronounce the words on the back of the of the packaging. So, how how without a technical background were you able to tackle this? Did you did you just recognize this early and jump on it or hire people? What would you do? When I started the company, I couldn't. I remember it took me almost a year and a half to learn how to say the word methylisothiazolinone. I mean, just as an example, I mean, these words are just so unbelievably difficult and they mean nothing to the average person, right? Because we're not, if you're not a chemist, that means nothing to you. So I, when I started Beauty Counter, I mean, it was sort of the most random group of people I had a makeup artist because we needed makeup. I had an environmental health activist. We had chemists. We had people from retail and e-commerce and direct sales, which is part of the way in which we sell our products. And it was, it was an unlikely group of characters joining forces to create a new type of product and a new method of distribution. And when we started it, I remember saying to the chemist with whom I was working, well, I want chemical-free products. And he laughed at me and he said, Greg, everything's a chemical. Water's a chemical. You, you, you You don't even know what you're talking about. And so I had to do a lot of research. And so now I've learned I want chemicals of concern out, but there are some perfectly benign, great chemicals that right. you want in. And so it's trying to figure out which ingredients are safe and which ones are not. And we've spent, you know, Every second for the last ten, you know, eight years plus, you know, trying to figure that out. And you guys quite famously made the Never List, uh, which, which, uh, which I know you also trademarked, so it's yours. Uh, what does it mean? <laughs> not and, that, not and that everyone you, doesn't come up with that list. Well, also, like, I'm an entrepreneur as well, and I tend to try to not say never very often because. Sometimes you might regret saying never. So (laughs) why did you do the never list? Have you had to go back on any of those? Have you found that you just can't make things you need to make because of it? Like to just talk a little bit about that list. When we created the never list, we wanted people to know that there were a number of ingredients that we were never going to choose in our formulations, right? Because those were chemicals that we believed were definitively chemicals of concern, or they were concerning enough to us that we wanted to err on the side of being cautious. And there were others that were, are indisputably linked to cancer. Like formaldehyde is just a known carcinogen, full stop. So we looked at those. We looked at what the EU had banned or restricted. We looked at all these different um, entities, you know, bodies of work. We worked with chemists. We worked with universities. We looked at you know, all these different, the green screen, all these things. And we tried to come up with a list of things that we felt we weren't going to use for either human health issues or for environmental issues. I think we're pretty, we're pretty happy with that list. It's not our comprehensive list of, of restricted ingredients, but it's a group that we won't, we won't formulate. And we've been able to create high performing products. You know, I think what's, what's challenging, what people don't always understand as consumers is, is that, and you probably know this from your products as well, that trace elements and trace bits of contaminants can still, because of the supply chain, can still end up in products. And so we don't formulate with them and we work really hard to remove, you know, trace, um, bits of, of, of chemicals. But, you know, I always say to people, there's no such thing as something that's BPA free, because even though they may not use BPA in their process of making a product, there are still traces of BPA through all of the recycling and centers. It's just, it's just in the earth. It's, it's everywhere now. And that's the same thing with, with toxic chemicals. So I'm pretty comfortable with what we've chosen to remove. We haven't had to go back on any of that. We continue to add and we continue to learn what our commitment is to you as a consumer, um, is that we will always be open and honest and transparent about the ingredients. We, we list everything. We don't hide behind words like fragrance. And if we find a chemical of concern, if information shifts, then we will work to immediately remove that you know, that chemical from our products. That's as much as we can do. We do the best we can with the information available yeah, in the world that. today. Yeah, I love that. Um, so, and this is, a, this is a big business now. You have 150 products. You got, I think I last read, 40,000 consultants that are selling your products uh, around the country, right? Just the country? Uh, we're in Canada as well. In Canada. North America. So North America. Okay, cool. Um, I want to skip over to the business side. And we are just kind of kind of learned a bit about the start here, but want to talk about scaling it up. So starting with uh, 11 products back in uh, 2013, you launched uh, after starting the business in 2011. And now you have scaled up to over 40,000 people. And those are consultants that are selling beauty counter products, which is incredible. It's like a modern day Avon. Uh, none of the pyramid schemes. I know we don't. We can we can talk about that too. But we. Uh, so, so, sorry about that. Um, but <laughs> why did you start this business? Like you could have done 2013. Like you could have done. Like there was some direct to consumer businesses. 
Uh, obviously, lots of beauties sold through Ulta, Sephora, etc. Like you could have gone that route. Why did you do direct sales? How that how's that been? How, how's that been for you? And how do you even start? Like how do you convince your first like two people to sell products for you? So I started Beauty Counter because I wanted to actually completely disrupt the entire beauty industry. I wanted to, you know, I have a mission of getting safer products into the hands of everyone. And we really wanted to create a movement. If you look at my early stage decks and the investors who came on, you know, one of the things is we said, we're going to build a movement and we're going to take this all the way to Washington. We're going to build a business that uses commerce as an engine for change. And how do we, you know, how do you power movement? You power movement with people. So, that was going on for me individually. You know, on top of that, I was looking at the entire consumer marketplace and everything was shifting direct to consumer. I knew that department store distribution of beauty products was over. I know that department stores would probably tell me that it's not, but I'm going to tell you that it yeah, is. Wrong. Yeah. I knew that we needed, you know, a digital, you know, e-commerce platform, but it was also, you know, especially back then, but still today, it's oftentimes difficult for people to look at the shade of a tinted moisturizer or to see the scent and texture of a product and be able to do that solely online. And so, you know, a friend of mine said, have you considered direct sales? To which I said, no, I had no, I knew nothing about it. It wasn't my background at all. My background had been in retail and consumer. Um, I honestly had a negative bias because I'd heard about, you know, businesses that were these like pyramid businesses and I, you know, over promising and under delivering in product. And I wanted nothing to do with that. But when I took a look at the successful companies in direct sales that had not only, you know, been able to sell a product that people believed in, but was, was able to sort of build a movement and empower women, I thought, well, this is really interesting, but how do we do it in a new way? And how do we incorporate other channels? So it's not just a direct sales model, but what we now call a direct retail model, direct to consumer through multiple channels, the largest of which is our network of independent consultants, now 40,000 strong. And what's been interesting is that, you know, when we look at our business, we've built it on three pillars, education, you know, we educate, we we formulate, so on product, and then we advocate. So we, we do all those things. That trifecta is what's made our business proposition and our business really, really successful. And we could not have done that without our independent consultants. So I think it's really interesting to use our 40,000 women, mostly women, some men, who in and of themselves are influencers. They're either micro or macro influencers. They're using, they're either, you know, building businesses through, you know, sort of offline parties at home or, you know, after school drop-offs, but more times than not, they're now building it on Instagram and Facebook and they're using their social channels and their personal influence to educate and to advocate, but also to sell products that they believe in. Do you think they love Beauty Counter because they like to educate their community? Do you think they like the advocacy or do you think they like the formulation the products? I think the women who sell our products and the ones that are most successful care about all three of those things. They absolutely view themselves as educators. In fact, we, you know, from the beginning called them consultants. Oftentimes they'll, they'll call themselves educators. They are proud to share important information. They're proud to help people live cleaner, healthier lives and to make better choices for themselves and their families by, you know, you know, telling them about what's in the products that they're using every day. I think that they also, you know, they really have to believe in the product. If you don't love the product you sell, you just can't sell it. I mean, I started, when I started, you know, right out of college, I sold Xerox copiers and fax machines. I mean, I... I loved selling, but I didn't love the product. I think it's hard if you don't love the product. And I think these women do believe in the product. But I think the thing that probably drives them more than anything is being part of a movement that allows them to be doing something that they believe to be meaningful, something that has significant social impact, and be able to do that while earning an income. That is a very valuable proposition. Yeah, totally. And a, a valuable income. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Like, how much do these ladies make? So we have people who make, you know, I, I, what I would say is that, you know, when you build a business with a beauty counter, it, you know, you are building on our platform, but what you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. I mean, it's a job like any other job. So we have women who dedicate five hours a week and we have women who dedicate 50 and we have women who are making, you know, get checks from us or, you know, direct deposits from us for $50 a month. And we have people who are making, uh, you know, we had our first million dollar, you know, income earner last year. Wow. So it's That's everything awesome. in between. And, you know, the, the majority probably are making, you know, a thousand, 2000 a month. They're just doing this on the side. They're mo- more times than not, they are either working a full-time job or they're a stay-at-home mom and they want do something on the side that they're proud of and they believe in and it's that it's that additional income that you know makes uh, summer camp a really easy decision for a family or braces on your kids or that pocketbook that someone's really wanted they want that handbag or those you know pair of all birds shoes that they can turn to their partner or spouse and say yeah I did buy those shoes and I wanted them and I earned that money 
That's that's amazing. A million dollars. I love that. I know. Um, I wish really, I was. Really I was. Cool. I was not the first yeah, million dollar yeah, exactly. at the company. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, as it should be. You mentioned the word female empowerment or empowerment at least, and uh, you're, I mean you're giving jobs to maybe full time jobs to a large majority of these consultants, and you obviously have a big workforce here in Los Angeles. Um, how do you? What do you think has been? I mean, you've been wildly successful as a as a CEO and executive. What do you think um, is is missing, and why are we talking about female empowerment? And what is missing in making way more great leaders like yourself uh, that also happen to be female? You know, it's it's funny because when I started Beauty Counter, I did not set out to empower women. I mean, I think empowerment is such an overused term. I, I set out to change the world. I set out to get safer products into people's hands and to change an industry. And the byproduct and the way in which we decided to distribute the products gave me the opportunity to empower women with, with economic opportunities. And I'm really proud of that. And I, I, I'm, I'm proud of the team that we've built. I think that... You know, the thing that I find so disheartening and, and I and I hear it and see it every single day is that we, especially we women to wom- woman to woman, we tend to judge the decisions that other women are making and and women and men both do it. But I think when it's why I, I think the reason that you see less women in leadership positions, I think there's a dearth of strong women leaders in this country is oftentimes because it's difficult to to have it all and to do that with confidence. I think most women so many women lack confidence. I mean, I lack confidence a lot. I, I, you know, I have to really, sometimes I have to, you know, go beyond my fear to say I can actually do what I'm doing. I can still be a great mom. I can still be a great partner to my husband, Mark, and I can still be a great CEO. And I think if we, as people, were a little bit more compassionate and supportive and said, you know, there are so many choices we can make as people, as grownups. You can be if you choose to have a family or you choose to have a full-time career, that's fantastic. And if you choose to stay at home, that's equally important. And everything in between is okay. And that's the same goes for men. I mean, I think so many men who choose to stay at home now are often looked down upon by other women and men because that's a different quote-unquote choice. I, I think that we need to do a better job, in, you know, giving people the confidence to make the decisions they want to make for their their personal lives and their families and then helping them navigate those times when you can't have it all in one day but you can still you can be, still be great at what you do. Okay, well let's let's shift over to uh the third third leg of the stool here, the advocacy part. Um you guys have done amazing work from basically day 1. Uh that I think the Neverless is obviously a great start, but you've also done a lot of work in DC and for a small company to spend money, time and resources to go to DC and try to lobby for something that inevitably is going to take a decade or longer to do anything in Congress. Um, why did you make that decision and why did you spend so much time doing that? And how does it help your business and what do you expect to get out of it? I believe that all citizens of this country, in the United States, and, and and ultimately everyone in the world should have access to safe products, full stop. I think that our laws in the United States that govern our industry are antiquated and insufficient. They still allow harmful chemicals to be put in the products that we put on ourselves and our, our families every single day. And when I started the company, I was unapologetic about my desire to change the laws, and I only would you know, work with people and take on investors who were also going to align with my desire to change the status quo in the United States. And now we're also fighting in Canada. And that's, uh, we're having our first, you know, trip to, with our consultants in Canada this spring. We have held over almost a thousand meetings now on the Hill since we launched uh, six years ago. We have met with members on both sides of the aisle, you know, every single year, many, many times to say it's time for cosmetic reform. We need to update these laws. What most Americans don't know is that the FDA does not have the power to either screen enough chemicals. They're not, they're not staffed sufficient. You know, they don't have enough staffing to screen chemicals of concern in a timely manner. And they also don't have the ability to recall products. And so our goal is to get a bill introduced. And we've been working closely with two senators, Senator Feinstein from California and Senator Collins from Maine on this bipartisan bill that would move the industry to a much better place. It wouldn't be perfect, but it would be a strong bill that I think that everyone believes, you know, should should transpire. With that said, you know, 
the meetings we've held, the 100,000 emails and text messages we've sent, the hundreds and thousands of meetings. I mean, March is our uh, is our in our anniversary month, and every March we do something called March 4th, and we take that month and we use all of our consultants in the U.S. and Canada, and they host local meetings in their homes to talk about and educate people and ask people to text and call members of Congress, and then they meet with local legislation, and then we do it on a federal level. You know, it's t- it's taken a long time, and I think that I think that people in Washington know we exist, know that this is an important issue, but doesn't mean that the laws are going to change quickly. Yeah. Is it, do you find it fun? Is it frustrating? What's, what's the, what is the emotion that comes to mind when you think about yourself sitting in Capitol Hill? I think, you know, I was not someone that knew a whole lot about Washington and politics. I'm not a politician. I think that what's been interesting, it's been interesting to learn about sort of democracy and how, one, how you can just participate in your democracy so easily. You can literally text someone. And after 20 phone calls or text messages, those members of Congress, they have to actually acknowledge and take action on those things when they hear their constituents talking about something. So it's been fascinating to me to see how thing, how one person can make a difference and your voice does matter in Washington. So that's the exciting part. And it's fun to be walking the halls of Congress. I mean, I even got to meet former Vice President Biden and go, you know, to meet with his chief of staff and to, to hear what was really going on in the inside and to be able to talk about this issue. That was really exciting. That's the positive side of it. The negative side, which we all know, is that we cannot seem to get much done in Washington. People are arguing incessantly over, you know, whether it's federal versus state preemption, who makes the final decisions, you know, the Republican Party versus the, the Democratic Party. No one, you know, why while we have a bipartisan support for cosmetic reform, the detail, the devil's in the details, and we haven't been able to, you know, get something done because of that, and that's frustrating to me. Yeah. What? So, if you were talking to them right now, very simply, what is the uh, Greg Renfrew Product Safety Act of 2019? What does it do? <laughs> that Product Safety Act would do a couple of things. First of all, it would give the FDA the power to recall products when they are when there are known. You know, you know, adverse health consequences happening all the time. I mean, there are products on the market today where they've had you know twenty thousand complaints. There's a there's a hair care product where there are you know women and men and children losing their hair and permanently losing their hair and getting and, and getting sick from these products. And the FDA can't do a damn thing about it. So I want the FDA to be able to recall product. I want them to screen chemicals and classes of chemicals for safety, looking at parabens and phthalates and known carcinogens and getting them out of our products immediately. Those are the things that I would really like them to focus on and to focus on now. Just a, a, a weird thought crosses my mind when you talk about that because you guys are already doing that. So you've, you've elected to not use any of those ingredients okay. that you think uh, show show a likelihood of causing uh, disruption to the fertility pathogenic disruptors or, or cancer-causing ingredients. Um, and if you were successful in passing the Greg Rangford Act of 2019, uh, everyone else is going to have to comply with the same thing, and your business is actually going to be less differentiated in some ways. Does that, does that bug you, or is, is that weird? Do investors say, hey, uh, you're kind of fighting against your own business, or am I am I just overthinking that? So my investors don't say that. We have incredible investors, but when I was raising capital, certainly in- investors would say, "Well, if you change the laws, then you're going to go out of business." And I would say, "Absolutely not." I mean, look at look at Whole Foods. I think is an incredible example of a company that has led the way, who's really focused on you know ingredient integrity, you know, taking care of the farmers, telling the farmers stories, educating the consumer, and you know, maybe today Walmart sells a lot. More organic product, but I, I, in my opinion, Whole Foods will still go down as the trusted you know source and will be known as a leader and has still had a very successful exit to Amazon. I think you know I am fighting for a day where my children and your children and everyone else doesn't need to worry about reading the labels on the products they use every day. And to me, if we can pass that laws, that is a huge win for Beauty Counter because we're not just a brand; we are a movement, and that that's why we why we started the company in the first place. I always say that the world didn't need another beauty brand. What they needed was a movement for better beauty, for clean beauty. And that's what we're focused on. Love that. Super inspiring. Um, You're also uh, registered as a B Corp. Are you Public Benefit Corporation? Yeah. Okay. Um, So 
how's that been? Is that is that a big deal at all for you, or is it kind of a not not a big deal? Now, being a B Corp is is a big deal, and it's also really hard. I mean, I think it, do you, people you know, know what a B Corp is? Now, probably most people don't know what a B Corp is because there are only about twenty seven hundred B corporations. So, B corporations, as you know, Joey, are companies that put into emphasis people, planet, and profit. So it's not it's not single bottom line; it's triple bottom line. You know, and if you look at where the world needs to go, we need companies that are doing well and doing good. I believe that you can use commerce as an engine for change. I think you can make a company extremely profitable and simultaneously have you know you know create significant social impact or not do things that are detrimental to to whether that's workers or the environment I think that's the way we need to go. I don't think it's enough to focus on profits anymore. I mean I think that's what got us into the pickle that we find ourselves in right now and we need more companies that are looking at you know so when we look at it and it's not easy to be a B corporation and we look at everything from our carbon footprint, our treatment to employers, the up and down the supply chain, how are workers in farms and you know people that are creating the raw materials, how are they treated? How do we treat our corporate employees? You know, how do we drive a profit while simultaneously, you know, creating social impact? And we have to look at it all day and there are constant you know, I would say there are tragedies of choice, but you know, for us, our our true north star is our focus on our mission. We are a purpose driven business, and so we're always going to look at it in that way. We just we just can't just look at profit. It's not who we are. Yeah. Yet at the same time, there's one. I think there's one B Corp that's listed on a public stock exchange in the U.S. Maybe two, and so it doesn't. It's not like going super fast. Do you think that? This is the future, and you have to give your investors money back at some point. Sure. Uh, maybe that's going to be public, or maybe you sell a business. But uh, how does this impact that? How does being a B Corp impact that? And in a in an environment when going public is awful to begin with, uh, or maybe not that part, but being public at least uh, is more difficult than ever. Wh- what do you what do you think about conflating that with the idea that now you have a, a different stakeholder that's not just your fiduciary responsibility and, and those public investors? It's interesting because people always say to me, you know, why don't you speak disparagingly about the large beauty brands that are out there, all of the traditional players and the incumbents that have that have been in the industry for a long time? Why aren't you talking about the fact that they're not changing their products quickly enough? And I and I would blame it on the capital markets. I think that we are unforgiving, certainly in the United States, we're unforgiving if someone makes a decision to you know, decrease, um, you know, uh, profits in the interest of doing the right thing for the world, whether it's the, you know, environment or the people, you know, they're oftentimes reprimanded and there you'll see the stock prices fall. I mean, I think that's, that's, that's where we are today, but I think that's an unacceptable, you know, I don't believe in the status quo. I've never believed in the status quo. So I think that we're not moving fast enough, but I think companies like mine, companies like yours, companies that can show that we are outpacing in growth, the the traditional brands by you know many factors, it, it shows that the consumer is increasingly demanding this of uh, you know demanding of companies that they do the right thing, that they are open, honest, transparent, and environmentally focused. And I think that it will shift, but I think it's going to take time. I mean, I think the more companies like Beauty Counter, Allbirds. Patagonia's others that can show that they can drive significant growth and do the right thing. They're going to lead us to the public markets. You know, I don't think anyone, I don't want to be a public CEO just because it's a pain in the neck, but not because of being a B corporation. But I will say that it has limited some of the companies that chose not to invest in us because they only care about profits and some companies that maybe that, that limits us on our exit a bit. I don't know. It's just, I think so that people, people actually turned you down because you were a B Corp. I don't think they turned us down just because we were a B corporation, but it certainly gave people pause. I think the people turned us down when they would say, well, your profit margin isn't as high if you're going to use safer ingredients. You're, everything you're doing is going up against the grain. Oh, you're trying to change the laws in Washington, which may put you at an ultimate disadvantage. And by the way, you're a B corporation. You know, we have a right, you know, we have a, we have a responsibility to our shareholders to return, you know, X percent back to them. And I thought, well, you know, you guys are, you guys are going to be in the dark pretty soon. You're going to be the dinosaurs of the industry because the companies that are going to be successful in the future, especially as in Investors are going to be those that are investing in companies doing the right thing. Yeah. So, but you do have two stakeholders, and anything more than one could could have some tension at some time. Do you, do you have an example when in your business you've had to choose one way or the other? And I know it's a spectrum, but where are you um, where are you having to put your your stakeholder of you know toxicity and basically re- removing that from the from the entire industry with making money? 
Oh, yes. I mean, I think we have those problems every single day. So, you know, what are some examples? I mean, I'll give you I'll give you an example right now. And this is less about toxicity. We've used certain plastics that are known that we've tested that are not leaching toxic chemicals into the products that we worked so hard to make clean in the beginning. That in and of itself is an incredibly complicated process. Now we're really focusing more on sustainability than ever. And we look at, okay, so if we switch everything to glass, then this is the complexity of my business. We switch everything to glass. The carbon footprint is better in some ways because it's glass versus plastic, but it's also, you know, it uses more materials because they, you know, they're heavier. So there's more fuel that's used there. There's more packaging that is necessary so that the glass doesn't scratch. And oh, by the way, it's hard to create these sort of airless pumps and things that work with glass. And so then do we have to put more preservatives that are toxic into products to preserve the products? And by the way, that all comes at a cost to the company. So how do I as as the you know CEO determine which is the most important of all those factors you know safety for human health safety for the environment you know focus on profitability focus on sustainability you look at all these things it's it's not easy it's it's a complex so what do you, what set do you of fall issues. back on how do you how do you deal with that well first and foremost for me number one is always is our product safe for human health that was the thing that we started you know we always said we're safety versus source we're focused first and foremost on that secondarily sustainability now we're increasingly now that we've really feel like we've done a good job on safety for ingredients. We're now really focused on sustainability. And that definitely makes us, we, we definitely take a hit in margin, but I believe that the consumer is going to award us their business because we're doing the right thing. Love it. Okay. Um, well, in, in the couple minutes we have left, I'd love to just hear uh, what's coming up uh, in the sense that why are you, why are you optimistic today more than you were, and I've heard you say this before, more than you were Eight years ago when you started the business? I'm optimistic today for a couple of reasons. First of all, I think on the political side of things, we're starting to see movement in the Personal Care Products Safety Act. And I think that with the changing of the sort of the com- complexion of Washington and the midterm elections, I think we have an opportunity to move a bill forward. And I, I know even on the House side, they're also introducing a bill there. So I think there will be some movement there. And I'm, I'm encouraged by that. It may not happen in this calendar year in 2019, but it is moving forward. And that makes me happy. I think I'm optimistic because I see our business growing so quickly because the in- entire consumer marketplace is shifting. People are starting to wake up to the fact that they have not been told the truth, whether, you know, they always say that the beauty industry was built on secrets and we're trying to undo that. We're trying to say no more secrets. Let's be open and honest about what's in our products and allow you the opportunity to make informed choices. And I think that most consumers, not most, but many consumers are starting to vote not only with their voices, but with their dollars and are supporting businesses that are doing the right thing. And I believe that there are a lot of other companies that are out there like yours in mind that are starting to do the right thing. They may be small today, but I think they're the future of tomorrow. Yeah, and me I think too. they really are where we're going. Totally agree. And I'd love to end on that note, but you just launched men's. And I think <laughs> there's plenty of men listener, uh, male listeners uh, on Sirius. So uh, give us, how, how do you buy this product? Do we have to go to? Do you can to, go to beautycounter.com right. and we just launched Counterman because, you know, there, men are also being impacted. You know, when you talk about fertility issues, for example, they are, those things are hitting men just as hard as they're hitting women. You know, 41% of the issues that we face in terms of fertility in this country are male related hmm. issues and men are 50% more likely to be diagnosed with cancer than women. And I, you know, when men can say, well, I don't wear, you know, makeup or whatever. No, you don't, but you do, you do, you know, wash your hair and you do brush your teeth and you do more times than not put on deodorant or use shave cream or, you know, beard oil or, you know, sunscreen. And all of these ingredients are going on your body and it's just as important for you to be safe as it is for me to be safe. I love it. Okay. Beautycounter.com. We'll leave it at that. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone. This is Purpose Built and that's Greg Renfrew, the CEO of Beauty Counter we've been listening to. Uh, inspiring as always. I'm Joey Zwillinger of Allbirds. Thanks for tuning in. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.